From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, your host. On Tuesday, June 27th, more than a decade after its first introduction in a congressional committee, the Pregnant Workers' Fairness Act went into effect, changing the landscape of work for all pregnant people. Before this law, many pregnant workers had to decide between protecting their jobs and protecting their health. While there have been efforts in the past to protect pregnant workers, employers have always been able to find loopholes to avoid providing accommodations. Against their judgment and against their doctor's judgment, pregnant workers have had to lift heavy objects, stand for hours on end, and expose themselves to harmful chemicals. This will no longer be the case, thanks to national advocacy efforts, including those from us here at the ACLU. Today, we're speaking with Vanya Lavelle, Senior Legislative Counsel in the ACLU's National Political Advocacy Department, who will share more about the mammoth undertaking that moved this law to its passage. And also, Jillian Thomas, Senior Staff Attorney for the ACLU's Women's Rights Project, who will detail what the act looks like in practice. Vanya, Jillian, Welcome to At Liberty. So happy to have you here to talk about good news. We love good news. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks so much for having us. So first off, I just want to say congratulations on passing the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, known as PWFA for short. How did you feel when the law was passed on December 23rd and then when it officially went into effect on June 27th? Can you can you take us back to those moments Vanya, I'll start with you. It's really hard to describe the joy that we felt. This had been a long time coming. Um, We've been working on this bill for, for 10 years, but the last three years were some of the most grueling you know, years that I've been through in terms of legislative advocacy and, and trying to push through a campaign. And it literally came down to the very last days. We were looking at failure. Um, So to see it finally go through was just, again, just hard to describe the joy, the happiness. There were tears, um, you know, folks calling each other. And it, it was just incredible. Jillian, was that your experience? Oh, absolutely. I have been litigating pregnancy accommodation cases for more than 15 years. The bulk of my pregnancy discrimination work in my career has been on failure to accommodate claims. So the mammoth undertaking that Vanya led, and it is accurate to say she led it, has met with so much resistance so many times and We have faced so much difficulty in the courts over and over trying to litigate under prior statutory protections, which we'll talk about in more more detail why those were insufficient. Mm -hmm. It really is not an understatement to say it was sort of surreal that the landscape could finally be changing in this way. It's the first federal protections for pregnant workers passed in 45 years. So that's how mega (laughs) significant and, and surreal it was. I want to get into how we got this done 
And Vanya, I'm very much looking forward to hearing this story. Um, But I want to first start with why this was so important to pass in the first place. Many people were and still are unaware that previous laws didn't sufficiently provide accommodations for pregnant workers. And Jillian, you hinted at this, even with the Pregnancy Discrimination Act and then Young versus United Parcel Service, pregnant workers have continued to face challenges. Can you briefly explain, Jillian, what this law and then the case did for pregnant workers and what protections were available and then maybe perhaps the holes? So you're right. The Pregnancy Discrimination Act was the primary vehicle that we as litigators had at our disposal in these kinds of cases. Um, It was enacted in 1978, and it has two clauses. The first clause is the, the one that prohibits what you might think of as more vanilla discrimination. You know, I'm not going to hire you because you're pregnant or we're not giving you that promotion because you're pregnant. But the second clause of the PDA says that for all employment-related purposes, including receipt of fringe benefits, and in this case, we consider accommodating temporary impairment a fringe benefit, for all those purposes... Pregnant workers are to be treated the same as others, similar in their ability or inability to work. And that language came out of the desire uh, that Congress had in enacting the PDA to rebuke a Supreme Court decision in the late 70s where pregnant workers challenged GE's temporary disability benefits policy that when you are out for a medical reason, they would pay your salary or part of your salary, but they excluded pregnant workers. The PDA was enacted against that backdrop, saying that when you have some sort of comprehensive benefit scheme that you make available to others who have some kind of impairment or inability to work, you have to extend it to pregnant workers too. The problem for workers who need accommodation, and just to be sure we're talking about our terms correctly here, that ranges from something preventive, like needing to take more bathroom breaks or drink water or be um, excused from performing certain tasks to something that's um, more, uh, that might be, you know, more structural, like changing your schedule or even getting to um, be away from work for doctor's appointments or or bed rest. The problem was that um, employers were making their own determinations about who was quote-unquote similar to pregnant workers in doling out those accommodations. And over and over again, leading up to the 2015 Young versus UPS decision that you alluded to, employers were saying, well, we give light duty, quote unquote, to workers who have been injured on the job. But pregnant people are not similar to people injured on the job because pregnancy is an, quote unquote, off the job medical condition, not something incurred on the job. We had hoped that Young would fix that, and in many ways it did, but the standard that was laid out there was still rather ambiguous and still was hamstrung by the actual language of the PDA, which does have that, does grant only a comparative right of accommodation. You only are entitled to whatever they give to to other workers. It's not an absolute right. Just one last thing I'll mention about holes. You know, the Americans with Disabilities Act which has been in place for over 30 years, um, doesn't have that kind of comparative language that the PDA has. If you are a qualified worker with an impairment that qualifies as a disability, you get the reasonable accommodations you need full stop, no matter what the employer gives to others. The problem is that most 
conditions of a quote-unquote normal pregnancy don't qualify as a disability. Morning sickness, um, uh, the need to go to a doctor's appointment, as well as those preventive measures that I noted, like carrying a water bottle to stay hydrated. Those don't qualify as disabilities, so it didn't entitle pregnant workers to accommodation. And then the Family and Medical Leave Act, which people may know entitles qualifying workers to up to 12 weeks of unpaid leave and can be taken in intermittent chunks, um, including to just go to doctor's visits and so forth. But the problem there is that um, you have to have worked for an employer for a full year, full time. Your employer has to qualify under the FMLA. It only covers uh, employers of 50 or more employees, which leaves out a lot of people. And so a lot of pregnant workers didn't qualify for FMLA leave, or even if they did, maybe they'd used it up. So the PWFA filled really critical gaps in the federal anti-discrimination regime that had been left by the comparative language in the PDA, the eligibility requirements of the FMLA, and the fact that most uh, normal pregnancies don't qualify as disabilities. Thank you for that rundown. That was really, really helpful just to understand um, where the holes existed. Vanya, given given the holes that are were very clear to us at least, was it difficult to convince people that pregnant workers needed this new law despite the fact that some protections already existed? Did you meet any kind of resistance on new legislation given the fact that there has been legislation? Yeah, there's always resistance to new legislation. Um, <laughs> you know, folks joke that, you know, the Senate is where bills go to die, right? Mm-hmm. And again, even with a bill with as much bipartisan support as PWFA had ultimately, it almost didn't happen. So we did spend a fair amount of time explaining, just as Julian just did, why there was a need. But I think something we did that was also critically important is not just explain the need, but bring workers and women's stories to the forefront so folks could see the need and feel the need. You know, um, you know mm. we, when we look back, and I've been asked this a few times about why did PWFA succeed? And I do think this just huge story bank that we had and that we disseminated widely in Republican offices and Democratic offices in the House and the Senate really made a difference. But it took 11 years of hard work to get it over the finish line, but I'm glad we did. If I could uh, add one thing to Vanya's response, my understanding, this is not, I am not the uh, the lobbyist in this group, but I know that legislators like to be able to quantify a mm. problem, you know, how many people are affected by this. And it's difficult to say because so many people don't get the accommodations they need because they mm. just don't ask, they don't bother. There was a study that came out some years back by our partners at the National Partnership for Women and Families, that estimated that roughly a quarter of a million people every year didn't get the accommodations they needed, whether because an employer had expressed policies or because they had been denied before or they um, just didn't ask uh, because they had seen others get denied. And we also can extrapolate knowing how many pregnant people are in the workforce at any given time, and it's roughly 3 million people. 
Lots and lots of people work in jobs that are dangerous Mm -hmm. in one way or another at some point during pregnancy. And the proof was in the pudding in terms of the the court decisions and how often pregnant people were losing. Mm. And A Better Balance, our our partners um, in this fight, did a study a few years after the Young versus UPS decision and found that two-thirds of plaintiffs challenging their denial of accommodations in court had still lost under the PDA. So that comparator requirement was really working a lot of mischief. Um, Even when we thought the law was very much on our side, um, it it was still failing us. That's good context and really important to understand just the the breadth of the problem. Vanya, I I wanted to ask you, you mentioned that one of the most effective ways that you found in moving this forward was in in telling and centering the stories of, of pregnant workers. Do you have a story that you could tell us? Well, we have so many ACLU clients um, whose stories we shared on, on Capitol Hill. And in fact, one of our ACLU clients, Michelle Durham, testified. There was a hearing in Congress, mm. the very first ever hearing on the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. And it was a fantastic panel um, that included Michelle, who told her story. She's a young woman who wanted to be an EMT, always wanted to be an EMT, um, finally was able to get a job at an e- as an EMT and then learned that she was pregnant. And her doctor told her, oh, by the way, this is Jillian's client. So Jillian, if I get anything wrong, feel free to jump in and correct me. <laughs> but, um, you know, her doctor told her not to lift more than 50 pounds. And that meant it was impossible for her to lift the gurneys. That was a part of her job. So instead, mm. she asked her employer, can I work dispatch? Is there another job that I can do while I'm pregnant? And they said no. Just flat out said no. Though they did provide, you know, dispatch jobs to other workers, but not for Michelle. And this really impacted her life. You know, she had to move in with her grandmother. She lost her health insurance. So there were all these bills. I mean, you think about these women at a time in their lives when they need their jobs, they need the income to support their families, they need their health insurance, to suddenly have that taken away just because you ask for a simple accommodation. You know, I would talk to the average person whenever when I did this advocacy over the last few years, and folks were just could not believe this was happening. The word I heard over and over, like, this is common sense. This is common sense to provide these Mm. accommodations. And they couldn't believe I was working for 10 years to pass a bill to address this problem. And I do think ultimately when you look at the numbers um, for passage in in the House, the first time it went to a vote, it passed, I think it was 329 um, to 103. Um, And the second time it passed, it passed with really huge numbers. It passed 19 to 2 in the Senate committee. So I think members of Congress are beginning to realize this is common sense. This is good for business. This is good for moms. This is Mm. good for families. This is good for the economy. So yeah, the stories really allowed us to show how important this legislation was. Thank you for sharing Michelle's story. I think it's also really important to like name that this is not just a women's rights issue. It's a it's a racial justice issue that so many workers of color were particularly um, harmed by the the gaping holes in in the legislation. How did that play a part in in the the movement? Um, how did you seek to center 
uh, pregnant people of color in particular, Vanya? Yeah, we did multiple letters that were led by organizations like Black Mamas Matter. We engaged the Black Maternal Health Caucus on Capitol Hill. Um, This was not just a racial justice issue, but it was a maternal health issue, right? And we know the crisis that's happening um, with maternal health among Black women. So again, another key piece of passing PWFA Um, It was this broad coalition of civil rights groups, labor groups, business groups, maternal health groups, faith-based groups, who all spoke of the importance of, you know, meeting the needs of of moms and families and workers. I'm so appreciative that you just made the connection for us from PWFA to addressing some of the larger context when we think about the problems that pregnant people face in America, specifically pregnant people of color, the maternal mortality crisis that you just named is something I wanted to get into. It's also arguably, I think, a really difficult time to be a pregnant person in America. If we think about the the landscape that we're living in right now, we just saw in the last year a real complete disaster when it comes to reproductive access for so many people in this country. Jillian, when we look at the legal landscape impacting pregnant people, we look at reproductive access, how does this add to the importance of PWFA right now? PWFA could not come at a more critical time for workers because, sadly, there are going to be countless more pregnant people in the workplace. And as a result, quite frankly, of of being forced to stay pregnant when they don't Mm want to be. And moreover, the people who are going to be least able to access abortion, that's going to be low-income women, and that's a group that is disproportionately black and brown. And so when you have an enormous, exponentially growing population of people who face higher-risk pregnancies Mm -hmm. overall, doing that dangerous work, um, it's it's a recipe for disaster if those people don't have a route to keep earning their paychecks while while maintaining their health. Absolutely. It also just strikes me like our lack of guaranteed parental leave or other supportive family policies also make the PWFA more important and more significant. Vanya, do you feel like the landscape that we're living in impacted how Congress received the PWFA and how you were able to to get it done? It's a really interesting question. The landscape helped and the landscape hurt. It helped certainly that, you know, Congress was unable to pass some of the bills that were critically needed, like um, uh, paid leave. Right. Um, we saw during the pandemic how important paid leave was to families um, um, so they could take care of themselves and their families um, and child care. Those were two pieces of legislation that folks had been trying to pass over the last couple of years, you know, really mounting significant campaigns to get those things over the finish line. And we weren't able to do it. So I think there was a willingness on the Hill to find a way to address the needs of families and PWFA were able to build strong bipartisan support to get it done. 
On the other hand, the landscape, I have to say, with the Dobbs decision made things difficult for PWFA because the Dobbs decision made the Senate, I think, a more polarized place than it usually was. And it was right before an election year. And folks aren't looking for a lot of bipartisanship in an election year, right? Like that just tends to be Mm. the reality. And PWFA was a quintessentially bipartisan bill. So it became less of a priority, I think, at certain points in the year post-Dobbs. So we had to really fight to make sure it maintained, that it continued to be a priority. The political headwinds that a piece of legislation faces is is always really interesting, to say the, the least, and, and definitely accounts for why it takes so long to pass something that even is bipartisan, as you mentioned. What kind of trips me up here, especially as you mentioned, Vanya, that in the last year, the Dobbs decision made it a harder place in some ways because it was an election year, people didn't want to be bipartisan. You'd think that in order to kind of, I don't know, maintain the talking point of we care about people having children, that it would be really hard to have them then deny movement on this piece of legislation um, as being a supportive feature for pregnant people. That feels a little bit contradictory to me, that they would kind of like perhaps the political nature of Dobbs would cause people to drag their feet a little bit more on getting it passed when it really seems like the bare minimum uh, to help alleviate some of the repercussions that were coming in the wake of Dobbs. Was that part of the conversation? It was super complicated. It was, again, so many undercurrents. And you know, you're talking about 535 people, and especially in the Senate, you know, those 100 senators have a lot of power. And Many of them were in different places, supportive, but no. I have to say, I think even with some Democrats, very supportive, but maybe not now. You know, again, one of the reasons I think the bill passed is you did have this incredible coalition. I mean, it's not often that you have the ACLU, the uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops on the same side of an issue, right? Like that doesn't generally happen. But... There was tension about, well, could PWFA provide additional rights that some conservatives thought might not be helpful, might not be a good thing? What would those be? Well, you know, maybe more reproductive rights that under PWFA, if, if let's say the accommodation is you wanted to take leave to get an abortion, right? I think that there were concerns about that on some sides and There were others of us who thought that'd be great. So there are just a lot of different undercurrents. And even, I think, among Democrats, the question is, uh, the Dobbs decision really demonstrated the very widespread support there was for abortion rights and really galvanized the American people. And did we want to distract from that by you know, prioritizing the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act at this moment. 
And I think that's where some of the delays came in. And oh, interesting. I mean, again, there were just lots of different undercurrents. Not everyone was on the same page about how to move forward because there was so much going on. You know, I think what comes up for me is something to return a little bit to what Vanya mentioned with the maternal mortality crisis. Altogether, it just feels like being a pregnant person in America is a very political status, whether or not you are pregnant, what you do when you're pregnant, how you can care or not care for yourself when you're pregnant, how you're treated after pregnancy feels all very, very political in a way that I feel like it isn't perhaps in in some of our peer nations. And I think it's also worth mentioning that, again, the maternal mortality crisis in the last 20 years, the number of people dying in the U.S. from pregnancy-related causes has more than doubled, according to a new study that was recently published by the Journal of the American Medical Association. The largest rise has been in the deaths of Black women. Among our peer nations, the 11 countries with similar GDP, we have the highest rates of maternal mortality. In a recent NPR story, Dr. Elizabeth Turlot, Chief Medical and Health Officer at March of Dimes, which is a maternal health nonprofit, says that the difference is in the kinds of services that other countries provide. They wrap services around new mothers. They give them support from, for everything from mental health, cardiovascular, diabetic, pelvic health. These things are just considered standard fare in other countries. The PWFA, to be clear, is working on one piece of the pu- puzzle for pregnant women, which is jobs and job conditions. I wonder if both of you feel that this win allows for deeper, broader conversations about what else we can pass legislatively to bring the U.S. to match our global peers in support and care for for pregnant people. I want to try and be optimistic about this. I know that there are advocates, you know, organizations and individuals across the country who are never going to give up who are always going to fight to strengthen our safety net, to fight to pass legislation that supports workers, women, families. But it's hard. It's really hard. I'm not under any illusion that passing the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act and happily the Pump for Nursing Mothers Act, you know, we passed both of those in December, that that's gonna open the floodgates. We were very lucky that we were able to get the 60 votes that we needed because you need 60 votes to do anything in the Senate, right? But there are a lot of these issues where we don't have those 60 votes. Mm -hmm. And the current makeup of Congress, um, you know, we don't expect to see much, much movement on legislation that we care about. But what gives me solace is that I know that there are organizations and individuals who will never stop fighting. I share your head-scratching, fist-shaking, insert additional metaphor here, um, about the hypocrisy of our policies and our culture around pregnancy in this country that We fetishize the baby bump. Um, We fetishize motherhood, um, you know, the multi-bazillion dollar industry that is Mother's Day, and yet provide virtually nothing 
to people to support motherhood and kids. I will say, um, and I am, I, I try to be optimistic too, but, but this work uh, will make a pessimist of anyone. I will say, however, that the reason that I love working on employment law as my specialty is that the workplace is in so many ways kind of a laboratory for moving the cultural needle. Mm. And, you know, of course, there's always the discussion of the chicken and egg, which comes first. Is it the legislation that forces changes in the workplace and then that moves culture? Or is it because cultural changes manifest in the workplace that that it makes legislative change possible? It's hard to say, but my hope around pregnancy and what PWFA contributes is that because of the sheer commonness of pregnancy, that 85% of working women will have at least one pregnancy during their lives, that pregnancy will be seen as a, a normal condition of employment. And it's temporary. It's no big deal to be um, providing pregnant people what they need to keep them on the job. And they're going to repay their employers with loyalty and longer tenures if they are supported. Can I also add that the fact that 30 states had passed PWFA was critical to passing it at the federal level, because that allowed us to go to members of Congress and say, your state has this. It gave them the cover, I think, to vote yes. Mm -hmm. And it also allowed us to talk to everyone. You know, there are some members of Congress I never talk to because they're, they're, they never really are all that supportive of some of the things I work on. But this gave me a chance to go to a lot of red states and say, you can support this. And to have people from their states come and talk about why this was such a good thing and how it helped the people in their state. So that was another critical piece of, of passing PWFA. Yeah, absolutely. It's very clear that this was a behemoth effort that brought together all different folks. I want to get to what the PWFA actually is and what it says and what it's going to give us in seeking to support pregnant workers as we continue on. And so the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act says that employers must give in quotes, reasonable accommodations to pregnant people unless these provisions would impose an undue hardship on the employer. At a high level, I'm, I'm wondering if we could just explain what is a reasonable accommodation and what is undue hardship and how did this language become included in the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act and, and why was this the right framework for it? I will say the language that we used, we modeled after the Americans with Disabilities Act, right? Because employers have been doing that for 30 years, you know, undue hardship. There's a lot of case law about what that means and what that looks like. Um, I think it helped allay some fears that employers might have about, well, wait a second, what new regime are you creating that's going to, you know, really screw us over? As Vanya said, the concepts of reasonable accommodation and undue hardship are borrowed from the Americans with Disabilities Act, and case law has established what an undue hardship is, and, and the answer is it depends. It's a multi-factor test, nothing mathematical. It's going to depend on um, the, uh, the nature of the um, limitation, the nature of the accommodation sought, the duration of the accommodation, uh, its cost. It's going to be um, looking at uh, how many other people are doing the job 
role that that person is doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's a multi-factor test, case-by-case basis. Uh, But we do really have the benefit of the fact that employers have been complying with the ADA, um, at least in theory, uh, for over 30 (laughs) years. And something that's, that's critical, though, is that unlike many disabilities, which which can be permanent, the pregnancy is by its nature a temporary condition. And so we're hoping that the concept of what an undue hardship is in the context of pregnancy accommodation will be something that's a higher bar um, precisely because of the, the temporary nature. But PWFA specifically says that the definition of undue hardship is borrowed from the ADA. It also specifically says that the interactive process, quote-unquote, that employers are required to engage in under the ADA in terms of identifying what's an appropriate accommodation that works for everybody, that that also is is incorporated in PWFA. It sounds like the familiarity of the ADA and compliance with the ADA within the workplace makes this implementation perhaps a little bit more familiar, smooth, more likely to go well, if you will. One question I had about how the ADA is structured is that it still does put a lot of onus on the person needing accommodations, which I think a lot of people who have been impacted by um, a lack of accommodations or an ADA violation would say that that has, that that is, um, uh, a hardship. Um, how do you respond to that, Jillian? Yeah, I think that's definitely a concern. And the PWFA specifically says that the employer is obligated to to reasonably accommodate the known limitation of the worker. I think the interactive process, the hope is that because that is, at least in theory, a um, a process that employers are familiar with, it will, in fact, avoid litigation, that there will be more kind of mutually satisfactory solutions arrived at between worker and employer. And what the interactive process means in plain English is, um, you know, that the worker is explaining what their limitations are. I can do this. I can't do that. Maybe they propose an accommodation. Um, Like, you know, I, I could do as, as Vanya was suggesting with our with our client, you know, I could do dispatch um, while I'm not able to do heavy sure. lifting, that kind of thing. The employer then comes back and says, well, we don't have any dispatch positions, but we have these kinds of positions. Would that work for you? Or, you know, three days a week, we have this, two days a week is that. And it's supposed to be a back and forth that allows for a mutually satisfactory resolution to be reached. But going back to the question of, of conveying um, the limitation I have seen a lot of training materials for employers about um, the ADA and ADA compliance, and it definitely puts the onus on employers, at least under the law. I'm not saying this works out in practice, but the law does say that a worker does not have to use any sort of magic words. You're supposed to be able to say things like, I'm having really bad nausea because of my pregnancy that's making it hard for me to get to work on time. That is supposed to kind of set off the alarm bells. Be enough to trigger a conversation. Yes, that is supposed to be enough. And similarly, through the interactive process, the employer is not uh, under the statute supposed to uh, force someone to go on leave, for instance, as their accommodation, if it's possible to identify something that will allow them to stay on the job. They are not allowed to force the employee to 
um, accept one kind of accommodation if another that um, would would be you know equally feasible is available and preferable to the worker. But I mean, you're absolutely right that the law is only as good as <laughs> as compliance with it, and unfortunately, workers who are um, not successful in getting what they need are the ones who have the the onus of of coming forward and you know taking the next step, whether that's filing an EEOC charge or whether it's filing an HR complaint. And, you know, that's scary. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank you for that breakdown. Um, it's helpful and uh, in understanding kind of what we can expect. And it does seem, at least in its uh, setup, that it allows for individuality in accommodations, which I think if you're thinking about any kind of health-oriented accommodation, the way, you know, disabilities manifest in people's bodies all very different. The way pregnancy manifests in people's bodies, also very different. I want to wrap up with something kind of brief and hopeful, um, which is I would love for each of you to share what this effort, um, this passage of this law means to you professionally, personally, and also maybe if you've learned something from it or just some kind of reflection on what this process has been like and and what you want to share with people? I've been at the ACLU 16 years and um, I've participated in quite a few proactive and defensive campaigns. This was a grueling effort, but working with some of the best people I've had a chance to work with, you know, not only in the coalition, we had a tremendous coalition that met every single week for three years every single week to develop strategy, to brainstorm, to figure out how we're going to overcome the many obstacles that we had to face. Our motto, both the coalition at the ACLU, is failure is not an option. And not because, you know, we like to win, but we always remember these workers, these women who so desperately needed us to keep fighting, right? Like they couldn't take on these employers on their own. You know, they were put on unpaid leave. They were fired and told to just fend for yourself. They were told they were expendable. And we were just not going to let that continue happening. I mean, this certainly has reinforced my, the view I've had that you never give up. Like the tenacity, you grind it out. You you just, you don't take no for an answer. Someone tells you no on one door, you find another door to open. But it was an amazing experience. I mean, honestly, one of the most grueling experiences of my professional life, but worth every, you know, gallon of blood, sweat, and tears. Thank you, Vanya. That was really lovely. Jillian, do you, do you have any thoughts to share as we close? I will say that at this moment in this landscape that we're dealing with in terms of Dobbs and so many other horrors, quite frankly, on the reproductive justice front, that to have some good news, um, to have to have the hardships that our clients have gone through um, yield some larger collective progress is satisfying at a level that I don't know that I've experienced often in my career. I love litigating because I love the clients and I love their stories and I love telling them to as many people as possible and and hopefully moving the needle for them. 
but to have their stories and what they've gone through advance the needle for so many other people is truly gratifying. But I can tell you I've been in touch with them. And, you know, the the exclamation points in the emails um, rejoicing over this gigantic step forward, you know, are really profoundly moving to me. And I'm very hopeful that it really will make a difference in terms of people getting what they need and it being no big deal. <laughs> and, you know, that's that's really the best outcome is that I don't get any phone calls. Um Right. Because this law works the way it's supposed to. And there is there is nothing more gratifying than um, having an intake come in through our website or someone call and, and have a problem and be able to say, well, guess what? <laughs> There's this new law and here's information about it. And why don't you go back and see what can happen? And to be able to empower people in that way to be their own advocates is amazing. It's also incredibly gratifying to to arm people to not have to engage in a fight at all. Yeah, absolutely. That's the goal, right? I mean, that's the goal of all the work that we're doing is is to make sure we have the legislation so that we don't actually have to get to litigation or to arm us, our litigation efforts, with some real uh, heft, if you will, to make it easier for these wins to happen. Um, I'm so glad that you both came and spent some time with us and and shared the effort. Thank you very much for joining me, Jillian and Vanya. Thank you so much for lifting up this tremendous win. It's a pleasure to talk about good news. Yes, thank you so much. Amazing. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. At Liberty is a production of the ACLU, produced by me, Kendall Seesmeyer, and Vanessa Handy. This episode was edited by Matt Boynton. Lila Sheridan is our intern. Until next week, stay strong.